0: Welcome furthermore to our celebration with today's program of the completion of our fourth full year of offering these noon-hour forums, free to all comers who walk through these sanctuary doors, and to those who tune in over the air. It was about this time, spring of 1980, that we landed on the idea of presenting these forums and on our theme, our overarching rubric, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today's speaker, Dr. Kurt Waldheim, represents our 26th such voice. And who better to help us honor your ongoing enthusiasm for what we are about here, And who better to help us focus on the most important question before every citizen of the world? Maintaining peace and international security, do we have a chance? Dr. Waldheim has devoted his life to diplomacy and international affairs. He is both a world citizen and a quintessential Austrian as someone described him to me only yesterday. He was Secretary General of the United Nations as we all recall from 1972 to 1982 and that against the background of a distinguished diplomatic career in and for his native Austria. He directed the United Nations affairs during perhaps the most difficult period in its history. He was involved in addressing and ameliorating many crises in such places as Israel, Egypt, Iran, Lebanon, Vietnam, Cyprus, Bangladesh, to name but several. He went to more than 120 countries, imagine it, during his tenure, looking for peaceful solutions to problems that defied easy resolution. He had access to every capital and to all leaders based on an earned reputation for high intelligence, diplomatic skill, fair play, and sensitivity to people of every tradition and culture. In each session of the United Nations, as in each encounter around the world, he earned and nurtured his reputation as being completely unflappable. Dr. Waldheim, we are honored by your presence with us here today. And we look forward to your helping us examine that question. Do we have a chance? Sir.
1: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Meisler, uh, for your very kind words of introduction. I'm indeed most grateful uh, to all of you and of course in the first place uh, to uh, the Westminster Town Hall Forum for inviting me to this uh, most impressive gathering. I'm indeed uh, um, very pleased that uh, the house is full despite the bad weather you have prepared for me, but I'm used to it. Uh, we have a similar weather in my country, Austria, <laughs> so uh, I feel quite at home here. I also want to thank uh, those who have helped me to come here, uh, of course, uh, Paul and Dan uh, and Mary Beth Koehler. Uh, they were all very helpful in uh, making it possible for me to come to this important anniversary, the fourth anniversary of uh, Westminster, Town Hall Forum. I remember a similar gathering when I started uh, my career as Secretary General in the United Nations. Uh, That was uh, when I had to preside over a meeting uh, in the big General Assembly Hall. The difference was that the hall was empty. (laughs) It was near the luncheon break and everybody has left. But one delegate uh, asked me whether he couldn't make his speech in the morning instead of in the afternoon because his press wants to report on it and it would be too late if he were to speak in the afternoon. So I said, yes, certainly you can do that, although you see the hall is rather empty. So he said, well, a few people I am sure will stay, but they left also. (laughs) (laughs) Despite all this, he went to the podium. He made his speech and he noticed a man Uh, sitting in one of the front rows, uh, listening carefully to his speech. And he was so deeply touched that this man had the patience to stay for him during his long speech, that when he had finished, he went down to him and thanked him, and said, I am so deeply grateful to you that you stayed here, listened to me, uh, in order to have at least one in the big hall." And the man looked up to him and said, Well, thank you, but uh, I didn't stay for you. I'm the next speaker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, our gathering here uh, coincides with a clear and frightening deterioration of the international situation. There is an increasing uneasiness as to the relationship between the two superpowers whose negative trend reflects on the whole fabric of international relations. The arms race, especially the competition in nuclear weapons, continues unabated, representing not only a severe risk to human survival, but also a tremendous waste of human and other vital resources. A number of regional disputes remain unresolved and continue to give rise to violence and frustration. The effort to devise global economic solutions suitable to present realities remains deadlocked. I mean the North-South dialogue, while poverty and economic disaster threaten large segments of the world's population. I speak to you as the former manager of an enterprise whose product is not uh, always visible and whose customers do not always honor their contracts, the United Nations. It is an enterprise whose primary source is the concept of human solidarity, transcending ideological differences, whose sales are measured by adherence to the principles of the Charter of the United Nations and whose profits are counted in the benefits of peace and the betterment of human lives. We often speak of what we like to call the international community, but we are only at the early stages in developing a community sense of shared objectives and of the need for common efforts. We are increasingly aware of the complex web of interdependence, the connections, causes and effects that bind nations together. Yet, balanced against the impulses that unite the world are the forces that tend to divide us, mistrust and suspicion, nationalistic rivalries, ignorance, and misguided notions of honor and prestige. With such conflicting tendencies, order and disorder, It is not easy to predict the state of the world in the next century, even though it is close at hand. Indeed, it is the absence of predictability that makes our world today so difficult and causes such anxiety. My dear friends, whether we like it or not, East-West relations are the dominant factor in international affairs today. It has its repercussions on the disarmament negotiations, the North-South relationship, and the chances for a solution of the many regional conflicts in the world. However, there is no confidence between the superpowers at all. You see it every day. Their actions are guided by mistrust and suspicion. Therefore, the arms race continues and most of the regional conflicts remain unresolved. There's a growing tendency to rely on public diplomacy which cannot achieve anything. If I say public diplomacy, I mean public speeches, attacking each other, accusing each other. That doesn't solve international problems. That kind of approach is more for home consumption than for the purpose of practical achievements. This brings me to an observation I wish to make in this connection. It has to do with the shortcomings of Western democracies. Clearly, Western democracy is, in my opinion, still the best political system we can have. It ensures individual freedom and it gives us so much we treasure. However, it has many shortcomings, since governments have to constantly keep in mind the wishes of the people and to satisfy them in order to be re-elected. For this reason, very often decisions are made on the basis of expediency instead of their merits. This constitutes a serious impediment to an objective decision-making process. Dictatorships do not have this problem, evidently. They decide without consulting their people. It is certainly an easier process, but I have my doubts, and I'm sure you share it, about its value In recent statements the new leaders in Moscow indicated their willingness to improve relations with Washington if the United States government were ready to negotiate on the basis of equality and quote, "equal security" They also stressed that the importance of large-scale measures for strengthening trust between the two nations and mutual consideration for legitimate interests of the other side. However, we should not be too optimistic about an early resumption of constructive negotiations between the two superpowers. Moscow continues to be highly suspicious about the American administration and does not seem to be ready to make any concessions which may help the incumbent in the forthcoming elections. That means that we cannot expect any dramatic change in the Soviet-American relations before next year. In the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, every effort will have to be made to contain the conflict of interests and to avoid any action which may cause a further deterioration of the already existing serious tension in the world. There was and is a collective leadership in the Soviet Union. With the exception of Stalin, only Khrushchev ignored this principle, which finally led to his downfall. Brezhnev respected it scrupulously. No decision was made by him without consulting the Politburo. I am sure that Konstantin Chernenko, the new Soviet leader, an old and well-established party veteran, will also respect the advice of the collective leadership which has already governed the country during the last few years, uh, not only under Andropov but already under Brezhnev when he was sick. I would therefore, it would therefore be a mistake to expect dramatic changes in Moscow's foreign policy just because a new leader has taken power. We will rather have a period of not too much movement during the next months. This impression is shared by a group of American experts on disarmament uh, called the Dartmouth Group, which recently visited Moscow in a private capacity and it came exactly to the same conclusions, that there is no chance for the uh, near future of any improvement in the relationship between the two sides. Now, I quote from their report, all signs are sharply negative. The Kremlin appears to have decided not to return to suspended nuclear arms talks until the American administration demonstrates with clear deeds that it is serious about reaching agreements. These people, that American delegation, stated that they had never seen the atmosphere so bad. They don't want to talk about any kind of arms control, they said, and their conclusion is uh, that Moscow doesn't want right now uh, to uh, resume uh, the disarmament talks. It has decided against any quick arms control agreement that might perhaps help the present administration. Apparently, there is also no progress in back-channel communications between the officials of both sides, not only on the upper level. There have been a number of meetings between the two foreign ministers, Gromyko on the one hand and uh, Schulz on the other, but uh, with the respective uh, foreign secretaries here and in Moscow. But uh, that also has shown uh, that uh, there is no chance for the time being to overcome the suspicion uh, on both sides and to resume direct talks between the two superpowers. The bitter atmosphere prevailing in those talks is not a good omen for future negotiations. And the Russians still appear to be stung over the United States deployment of Pershing-2 and cruise missiles in Europe last year despite strong protests by Moscow. They are afraid that these new modern American missiles in Western Europe are aimed at destroying Moscow's military command network. Obviously, and it's important to remind you this, obviously, Moscow is overlooking the fact that its its deployment of modern SS-20 missiles in the Western Soviet Union already four years ago started the present escalation. Ladies and gentlemen, this proves again the fact that the arms race can only be stopped if the two sides establish a minimum of political confidence in which constructive negotiations can begin. I referred a moment ago to the ever-increasing arms race. Nuclear weapons have now acquired a unique role in international affairs. And the future of mankind is hostage to the perceived security of a few nuclear weapon states. I do not want to repeat here the well-known arguments against nuclear war. Needless to say, I share the deep concern of the international community about the nuclear arms race and its disastrous consequences for human survival. However, the issue is not a technical one as we can read so often in the newspapers or here over the media. Uh, It's not a technical issue what kind of nuclear weapons and how many warheads should be permitted, but rather the present relations between the two superpowers. It is a highly political problem if it were possible to improve the relations between the two sides, especially between Moscow and Washington, and to restore a minimum of trust Progress in the negotiations on arms control and the reduction of nuclear weapons is certainly possible. To achieve this, uh, um, to achieve such an improved political climate, personal contacts between the leaders of the two countries are important. Such contacts should be established not only on the summit level, and we are still far away from a summit meeting, in the light of what I just told you, but perhaps uh, um, on the level of the military leadership of the two sides, and I would also suggest the more intense exchange in the economic and cultural fields, the more contacts, the better the chances for a relaxation of tension and constructive results. I'm personally convinced that if the political will exists and a minimum of confidence is restored, an arms agreement can be hammered out even if it were only a first step leading to a more comprehensive agreement later on. Ladies and gentlemen, It is obvious that the growing East-West tension also has its consequences for the efforts of the international community to deal constructively with the existing regional conflicts, and unfortunately, there are too many today. The Middle East, Southern Africa, Central America, Afghanistan, and Southeast Asia are frustrating examples of these consequences. For more than ten years I was personally involved in such efforts and experienced the negative impact of deteriorating East-West relations on the negotiating process in this respect. Let me just mention Lebanon. The Israeli invasion last year had led or has led to a military defeat of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, but contributed also to the disintegration process of the country which we are witnessing today. I mean Lebanon. The treaty between the Lebanese government and Israel worked out under American auspices was based on the assumption that Syria would sign the treaty later. Obviously, this was highly unrealistic. I know the Syrians and I know President Assad from many negotiations I had with him in the past. Assad is not a man who would accept what others have decided without his participation. And he was not involved in those negotiations between Israel and Lebanon, under American auspices. Psychology plays an important role in Arab countries. And this aspect has apparently been ignored by those who negotiated the troop withdrawal treaty. And we see the consequences today. The United States has withdrawn its peacekeeping force from Lebanon. So did the other three members of the multinational force. The limited mandate which that force had made it impossible for it to play a useful role. Perhaps its tribulations will provide the international community with a better perspective from which to assess the value of using the United Nations for peacekeeping purposes. You see, ladies and gentlemen, if the two sides agree to such a peacekeeping operation, whether it's under the auspices of the United Nations or like uh, the multinational force independent from the United Nations, such an operation can only work if the parties in conflict agree to it and support that operation. Therefore, our peacekeeping operation in Sinai worked perfectly well as a sort of buffer zone until Camp David when the forces were withdrawn in the light of Camp David. And the same is true for the Golan Heights, for our United Nations peacekeeping force on the Golan Heights called Andov. You never hear about it. It is still there, uh, an international force composed of smaller countries. And uh, it works because the two sides, the Syrians and the Israelis, agreed with and support our police function in that area. So what I want to stress is, it is necessary for a peacekeeping operation to have the full support of the parties in conflict. Then it works. And another important point, let not, uh, let's not get uh, big powers involved in such peacekeeping operations. They are an easy target. They have no clear mandate, as you could see with the Marines and the tragic incidents in this connection, as well as with the French. Whereas if the United Nations is choosing small countries like Fiji, Sweden, Finland, Austria, etc., who has an interest uh, to launch uh, such uh, horrible attacks as it was done against the American Marines and the French forces. They cannot accuse Fiji or Finland of having uh, imperialistic designs in the area. Uh, of course, uh, it is well meant whatever uh, big powers are doing in, in such situations like uh, the United States or France but there's always the suspicion uh, amongst uh, the uh, belligerents uh, that they would follow selfish interests. So one of the principles, in my opinion, one should follow in such situations is to use smaller countries for such peacekeeping forces. In the solution in Lebanon must be a political solution. It cannot be a solution in isolation from the other aspects of the Middle East problem. Whatever the future of the Palestine Liberation Organization uh, may be, and incidentally, Arafat has again uh, gained ground in the Arab world. The Palestinian issue will inevitably have to uh, to figure prominently in any comprehensive settlement in the Middle East. Syrian President Assad's triumph in Lebanon strengthened his position as a leading player on the Middle East scene. That was certainly not what Washington had in mind. Uh, Arab diplomats indicated that uh, Assad and Arafat will strike a deal and compromise with one another. Assad knows that uh, the Damascus wing, the left wing, the uh, radical wing of the PLO alone lacks credibility in the Arab world. And Arafat on the other hand has found out that for a number of reasons the PLO without Syrian support is irrelevant. Uh, politically, a reunited PLO will support uh, the FACE-Arab Summit meetings decision, which stated the right to exist for all the states in the area, including Israel, although not mentioned by name, in exchange for the return to the Arabs of all territory occupied by Israel in nineteen 19- 67. In the end, peace in the Middle East requires a comprehensive agreement on a group of interrelated problems. The step-by-step approach can help bring that eventually closer, but it can never by itself substitute for a general settlement. Having seen the recent failure of so many bilateral and regional efforts to solve the Middle East problem. I feel that an international conference may give a new impulse uh, to the situation. I also believe uh, that uh, sooner or later, the Soviet Union will have to to participate in the negotiating process. Not that we like that so much, but they are the only ones uh, who can influence certain parties like, for instance, uh, uh, Syria uh, and uh, the PLO, the Palestinians uh, and others. Uh, to influence them to uh, adopt a more more constructive attitude. There was such a conference in Geneva, as you know, uh, when Kissinger had negotiated the disengagement agreements, and it worked perfectly well. So I think, uh, with goodwill, such a conference should be possible. I don't think that the conference in itself will solve the problem but it can create working groups, can bring the belligerents together, and in this way start a new negotiating process. A few words about Central America, which is so near to you. In my opinion, most of the troubles existing in those countries are based on social conditions. The gap between rich and poor and the incredible poverty prevailing in this region have created the social climate which led to the present political upheavals. I'm convinced that these problems cannot be resolved through military means, but only through a political process without foreign intervention. Therefore, the efforts of the so-called Contadora Group, those four Latin American countries, Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia and Panama, uh, which is trying to work out Uh, a political solution has to be supported. It will be a long and arduous process, but it is the only way to peace and stability in the area. Of course, the issue is much broader than this. The basic cause of the turmoil that exists in Central America is, as I said, economic and social. We know that certain measures, like technical assistance, land distribution, improved educational and social services, the establishment of democratic institutions and the like, should promote political and social stability in these countries. But that alone is not enough. What is needed is, if you will, an ideology that will energize the peoples of these countries so that they themselves will defend with political will and enthusiasm the government structure uh, that they possess. Right now, they don't do it, as we are fully aware. As far as Nicaragua is concerned, uh, the recent developments have clearly shown how delicate the problem there is, and uh, also showed the deep concern of the international community in regard to the measures taken only recently by uh, the government of your country. In my opinion, uh, the decision to mine uh, the harbors uh, of Nicaragua is not in line with international law. And uh, I also regret Uh, that uh, the administration has canceled the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice uh, for the next uh, two years uh, because of the request of Nicaragua to deal with this matter. I think that uh, either we have such international institutions and we are members of it, then we should better support them and uh, respect them, giving them a chance to show that they can do something constructive, something useful, and can be of help also to the countries uh, involved in such conflicts. Ladies and gentlemen, the the recent political and military developments in the world are only one aspect of the international crisis. The other one is the economic situation. It is obvious that the world economy has not been functioning well for many years. Over the past decade, even the richest countries have suffered from growing unemployment, stagnant rates of economic growth, and a spiraling inflation. However, the developing countries are the ones which suffer most. Latin America, with its accumulated debts, is a case in point. Third world prosperity is directly linked to global trade. If trade expands, the world economy expands. If global trade is stagnant or constricts, the slowly beginning recovery will be threatened. Two factors are essential to ensure expanding trade. The industrial nations must avoid taking actions such as imposing quotas or tariffs that could trigger a fresh round of global protectionism. At the same time, and this is the second measure, the industrial nations must continue to provide the capital necessary to sustain a healthy volume of new lending to financially pinched third world nations. Let there be no mistake, the new lending is essential both to enable debtor nations to service existing debt obligations and thus prevent the global banking crisis, as well as to help third world nations finance trade. The recent negotiations between international bankers and uh, Latin American borrowers were in a critical stage. Uh, The immediate issue was, as you perhaps know, the 45 billion dollars in loans uh, to Argentina. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a basic question. It, doesn't, uh, uh, it is not a problem for Argentina alone. The third world in general is deeply indebted. In this case, when Argentina was not able anymore to pay the interest, not to talk about the capital, uh, three Latin American countries uh, came to the help of Argentina, like Brazil and uh, Mexico. Uh, and uh, together with the United States, they put together a package of $500 million to help them meeting the deadline for the payment of interest. America very generously uh, offering $300 million to this $500 million package. Now this is fine and it has solved the situation for the moment, but uh, in now uh, more extensive measures have to be uh, taken in order to solve uh, the crisis. Because if we do not negotiate a new uh, international monetary system, I'm afraid we will have a catastrophe. Those countries in the third world, especially in Latin America, are simply not uh, capable to repay the debts. Altogether, the Latins alone have over 200 billion dollars' debts. They can't repay that. So, what has happened today is that we, the North, the industrialized countries, we are the prisoners of the South. Because if they don't pay their debts, uh, hundreds, thousands of commercial banks in the North will go bankrupt, and in this way, an international monetary crisis will arise, and that may lead to an international uh, uh, breakdown of the whole trading system. This is really one of the greatest dangers uh, for peace and international security. We should not believe that uh, political issues, as I have mentioned before, are the only danger to world peace. That is not so, ladies and gentlemen. We should not neglect what is going on in the field of economic cooperation and especially in the field of the North-South relationship. This is really one of the greatest challenges we are facing today, and I hope that uh, we will meet this challenge because otherwise we may easily reach the point which we had reached in the 30s when the whole world economic system broke down. Fortunately, today there is an easier communication amongst the nations of the world, and especially also between the north and the south. It's better than between east and west, in fact, and that may help us to meet that crisis. Uh, Therefore, concerted efforts of the international community, both of the public and private sectors, are, in my view, urgently required to preserve the modest accomplishment of the past uh, in the development of the countries of the third world. Such efforts ladies and gentlemen, are by no means charity to any country. They should be based on enlightened self-interest of the industrialized countries. The worldwide economic interdependence, which has emerged particularly in the last decade, establishes a direct link between the well-being of the developed and the developing world. Thus, all energies should be concentrated on reversing the deteriorating human and social conditions in developing countries and integrating them more fully and responsibly into the network of the world economy. Incidentally, let me tell you also that the American economy depends very much on the um, healthy development in the third world. Many of the jobs in your country depend on uh, the development in the third world. I can tell you, for instance, uh, uh, that today, America's trade with developing countries exceeds in volume its trade with all of Europe, East and West, and Japan. U.S. exports to developing countries have more than tripled since 1976. At the same time, the U.S. market buys over 50% of all developing country exports of manufactured goods to industrialized countries exports to developing countries now support more than five million jobs for American workers. I thought I should mention these figures because it shows how interdependent the world has become and how important it is that we solve the problem of the North-South relationship. My dear friends, the challenge of peace was never greater than now. The words of the UN Charter To practice tolerance and to live together in peace with one another have a particular and profound meaning for all people in the world. However, instead of cooperating, we are confronting each other. Unfortunately, there's a disquieting tendency away from internationalism and back to nationalism, sometimes even showing signs of chauvinism. I do not believe that World War III will happen in the near future, but we have to make sure that it doesn't happen by accident. Miscalculations, misjudgments, and computer failures are the greatest danger in this regard. Ladies and gentlemen, there is indeed a crisis of confidence in international affairs. It is a political crisis, and it is an economic crisis. We cannot expect to solve these problems in isolation. One issue is closely linked to the other. A conflict in one corner of the globe has its repercussions on the rest of the world. It is therefore imperative to deal with the great issues of our time in a global perspective. What we need most is more understanding for the problems of the other side. More personal contacts in the different fields of international relations, whether political, economic, or cultural, will help to start a new dialogue not only between the great powers, but also among the many other nations of our globe. We should not always be obsessed by the idea of what is best for me, but also think a little about the question of what is good and acceptable for the other. If we do this, we will have a good chance of overcoming the present crisis of confidence and to open the door for a healthier development in international affairs. My dear friends, I have tried to give you a frank and unambiguous picture of the international situation. I do not wish to minimize our problems, but I believe it is within our powers to solve them. We have the resources and we have the ability. What we need is the political will and the courage to break with past practices and to deal with our problems on a worldwide basis. My years at the United Nations, ladies and gentlemen, offered me every day both harsh reminders of the world as it really is, and tantalizing glimpses of what it could be. Only the vision of a better world, a world of peace, justice, and progress for all, can sustain us in the daily struggle to meet the enormous challenges of our time. I'm more convinced than ever that our greatest danger will come if we lose that vision. I thank you.
0: Let me acknowledge and thank A number who have helped this day come to pass with co-sponsorships, namely Mr. Leonard Lindquist, the M.A. Mortensen Company, and the uh, Honeywell Incorporated. My name is Donald Meisel, and I am moderator of these forums. You will need or like to know that this program will be rebroadcast Saturday, this coming Saturday at noon, that you might listen again or that those who missed it might tune in. Just to quickly move into the question period, perhaps, Dr. Baldheim, you'd, you'd return to the podium, and while they're sorting those several, I'll put one that uh, I had in mind for you. I was intrigued in hearing you speak last night when we were together about this new advisory group of uh, former heads of states and others that you head. Would you be willing to say something about that group and, and your hopes for it?
1: Clearly, uh, this is a group of 25 uh, elder statesmen, uh, former heads of state and uh, former prime ministers who formed uh, the so-called Interaction Council, an international commission, um, and elected me as their chairman. Uh, this group uh, is in, intense uh, to work out uh, suggestions and proposals uh, for the c- governments to assist them in the decision-making process. We had our first plenary meeting uh, last November in Vienna. We have the next one uh, in May this year. And in between, we have a number of working groups uh, which are trying uh, to work out something practical. We are not uh, wanting to repeat what Willy Brandt has done with his group or Palme in the field of disarmament. What we want to do is uh, uh, to achieve an on, uh, to start an ongoing process of consultations. Whatever we intend to propose, we will bring directly to the governments, to the key governments here in Washington, in Moscow, in the northern industrialized countries, in the south. And you tell he or uh, Nigeria, whatever the countries may be, discussing this personally with them and in this way hoping to be able to advise the governments in their
0: difficult tasks. very hopeful sign, I would judge. Here's another question that came from a member of the staff of this church. The fact that none of the major powers with nuclear weapons have been involved in military conflicts with each other does speak positively for the policy of mutual deterrence. The negative side of the policy is that one mistake, one conflict and no one will have a second chance to make amends. What changes would you suggest for the U.S. policy of mutual deterrence?
1: This depends also, as I said in my speech, on a climate of uh, confidence, a minimum of trust. You can't negotiate anything with success if you don't trust each other. Of course, verification is a very important aspect but not everything should depend on the uh, verification aspect. So, we have to proceed uh, step by step. First, to create that minimum of confidence, which will then enable the two sides to resume the disarmament negotiations, in Geneva, wherever it may take place, and to try uh, to uh, uh, make progress. Uh, It it is impossible to solve all these delicate, uh, most difficult, disarmament problems through one big treaty. This is just uh, unrealistic. What we have to do is uh, to try step by step uh, to uh, work out agreement on limited uh, disarmament measures. And uh, I think if we proceed in this way, we have a better chance to succeed.
0: I spoke in introducing you about the many crises that you were caught up in the middle of during your tenure with the United Nations. We, we know that the, uh, the Iranian crisis was particularly uh, sticky and, and perhaps threatening to you uh, personally and physically. Would you care to to talk about that experience at all?
1: Well, it is uh, again fresh in my mind because I just finished a chapter on the Iranian hostage crisis in my memoirs which I'm writing now at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., Uh, and uh, I had to look into the files again. I can tell you it was the most horrible experience I made during all these then years of my secretary generalship. And I was asking myself, is it really the duty of a secretary general who had been elected unanimously by the international community to serve in this capacity, to do that, to go through such a ordeal? Because again and again in the morning when I wanted to leave uh, my hotel in Tehran, the foreign minister, Bob he was uh, executed in the meantime, as you know, uh, rang me up and said, don't come, uh, we discovered uh, uh, an, an, a new assassination attempt against your life and uh, we have no means to protect you, this is a revolution and uh, one is fighting against the other. So uh, you can stay in the hotel and maybe we wait a day or so before we resume our talks. The whole program had to be changed every uh, hour. But I told him when I heard that I should not go to a cemetery, uh, would that uh, omission be harmful to the chances for uh, getting the release of the hostages? He said, well, maybe. So in this, Uh, situation, I said, okay, then let's go ahead and I go to the cemetery because if it does influence the uh, revolutionary guards and so on, uh, and those uh, revolutionary students in the American compound uh, in a positive way, releasing the hostages, I'm certainly taking the risk. So we went there, and uh, the rest you have seen on television, I was attacked. (laughs) Uh, physically by thousands of demonstrators. Uh, They always uh, accused me of being an exponent of the United States and that I didn't do enough against the Shah, but now I'm coming personally to Tehran because it's the question of uh, uh, 50 or so American hostages. So indeed it was the most uh, uh, critical and I I would say the most dangerous Uh, mission I ever undertook during uh, those 10 years. And let me add uh, here something. I think all this has contributed to the release of the hostages. It is not true that uh, only in the uh, last stage uh, with the help of the Algerians, the problem was resolved. Certainly, that was the last uh, phase of the efforts. But what we have done in the United Nations, my personal visit, which made it possible for the Carter administration to know what the Iranians want, because I presented the American proposal and I uh, got the uh, Iranian counterproposals, and that led them to the inquiry commission, which I put together, the International Commission, which I sent to to, uh, Tehran, and they also prepared the ground for a later solution, although they couldn't bring home immediately the hostages. So what I want to say is, although we were unable to solve the problem immediately, all these efforts have certainly contributed to the later release of the hostages.
0: Perhaps this next question uh, fits in nicely. What was your most satisfying hour as Secretary General of the UN?
1: Well, uh, I used to say, when I'm asked this question, Uh, this uh, function is a mixture of satisfaction and frustration. In fact, there are more frustrations than satisfactions, (laughs) I confess. But one of those positive uh, uh, experiences was my uh, contribution uh, to uh, a ceasefire in the Middle East during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. When the world was faced with the danger of a great power confrontation in the Middle East, you remember the Russians threatened to send their troops to the Middle East, and the Americans put all their forces worldwide on alert, and it looked like a big power confrontation uh, was inevitable. It was at that moment that uh, the Security Council got together, quickly adopted the resolution, requesting the Secretary General to send the peacekeeping force immediately to the uh, battlefield. I did it, I was on my own, I could make my own decisions after having gotten that resolution, and I decided to ship, to fly uh, over 2,000 peacekeepers overnight from Cyprus, fortunately it was quiet there uh, for once, uh, to Cairo, (laughs) and from Cairo uh, up uh, to the battlefield, uh, they separated the belligerents, and uh, we got the ceasefire which was finally implemented by both sides, and in this way, a big power confrontation in the Middle East was avoided. That gave me some satisfaction.
0: Why are the Russians afraid of us, and how do we allay those fears?
1: As I said in my speech, uh, it needs uh, um, uh, an effort to convince the other side that this great country and the Western world in general is not out for uh, um, attacking uh, the Soviet Union. But you must understand their fear, ladies and gentlemen, Uh, they have been attacked uh, in their history repeatedly by Western powers. Napoleon attacked them and you know from your studies of history what happened when they burned down Moscow and so on. And then Hitler attacked them uh, in the most cruel way. So uh, it, one has to, we have to put our shoes, our uh, feet in, in their shoes because they are indeed afraid that such a thing could happen again. It's difficult to explain to them that in a Western democracy this doesn't happen. It wouldn't be possible to attack them overnight as Hitler had done. But since you asked me this question, I think I have to tell you this. It is this kind of fear. I personally do not believe that the Russians will attack the Western world directly with their military forces. They will continue with subversive uh, actions in. Central America and in other parts of the world, but I don't think they will attack uh, the Western world directly. What we can do, of course, is first stop provocative statements, stop uh, rhetoric, do what you believe is necessary in order to keep the country strong and ready for any possible attack. I don't believe it will happen, but it is only logical that a big power like yours has to be strong. Do it, but don't talk too much about it.
0: (laughs) What realistically can be done in response to the growing prevalence of terrorism as a means of expression in today's world, Iran, Iraq, and the, the like?
1: Well, uh, this uh, fundamentalist approach, especially in the Muslim world today, is uh, indeed uh, a great uh, danger and it frightens especially those countries which are nearby I'm just coming back from a visit to the Gulf states and they are, they are deeply concerned uh, and afraid even uh, of uh, an intrusion by uh, those uh, uh, fundamentalist forces from Iran especially. Those are moderate governments in the Gulf area, and they are afraid that this uh, uh, terroristic uh, approach may uh, uh, get to their country and create problems uh, there. But it is a general problem in the whole world, and it reminds me uh, what happened when I started my job as Secretary General. I have to give you this example quickly. we witnessed the terrible tragedy of killing Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympic Games, I immediately put this item of terrorism on the agenda of the United Nations. I requested the inclusion of a special item, international terrorism. I had thought at that time, the the assembly will welcome such uh, a decision of mine, Uh, but the opposite was true. Uh, I was criticized uh, by the Arab countries especially uh, for putting it on the agenda of the General Assembly, saying, well, you are only uh, criticizing acts of terrorism, but you do not uh, give us a chance to deal with the political background of uh, uh, such uh, political terrorism. So after an endless uh, discussion, Uh, It was decided to have it on the agenda, but with a different title, namely, international terrorism and its underlying causes. So there we had then a long debate on what it's all about, uh, political terrorism. A number of international conventions and uh, treaties have been signed in the meantime, but it depends in the first place on the measures taken by governments themselves in order to uh, oppose uh, terrorism.
0: Right. As we move toward the end of this hour together, let me observe that my understanding is that you might be running for the Austrian presidency in uh, 1986. And the way I hear it, any of the candidates who are running so feverishly to take over the presidency in the US come the November election would be very happy with the prospects of success anything like your own. We uh, we wish you well in that endeavor. and. Let me pose a final question, to which then we can respond as we take our leave. Um, Let me recall with you that you met with a group of young people in our conference room just before uh, this program, and indeed they gave you a t-shirt with the big emblem of uh, World Citizen on it. Uh, The fact that it was extra large presents a problem, but uh, (laughs) they should have given it to me. But... uh, (laughs) I wonder if you have a, a word uh, for our, our young people and perhaps related to that what one person or a few individuals can do uh, in behalf of a peaceful world. Uh,
1: let me first uh, briefly remark that uh, I haven't made any decision uh, <laughs> concerning a possible candidacy for the presidency, so I want to make this point. Uh, there are still two years to go. Uh, the president. Uh, Uh, term, the president's term ends in 86, so I haven't made any decision just to make clear what the situation is. As far as world citizenship is concerned, I was really deeply touched by this group of youngsters who first showed me a movie which they had made, and the main theme is international cooperation. They are concerned with nuclear war and so on. I think it's very important that this is done and that the young generation learns in time Uh, the dangers of a nuclear war and is trying to do their best in order uh, to understand fully all the implications of a military confrontation on a worldwide basis. We, our generations, have seen it, but they have to learn it. I think what we can do and what you can do is to encourage the young generation to do this, to support the idea of an international authority, whether it's a real government, I think we are still far away from this, but to encourage the young generation to do whatever they can in mobilizing public opinion in favor of a real global international cooperation. It's one world and we have to behave as citizens of the whole world.
0: Yes, people.